For your audience must be impressed or you're wasting your breath. So you get ready to answer my questions? And all in thrilling new living sound. What is this big idea? It helps the speaker lead his audience. I'm in touch with technological advances pretty well everywhere. I can tell you that no one has produced anything like this. Truth. Truth and Soul Incorporated, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Right, hello everybody. Welcome to Truth and Soul. I've lost count of the episodes, but it must be around 10 or something like that. Uh, very exciting uh, guest today, hopefully. Um, Andrew, hopefully. Andrew Stone. Who, uh, uh, do you go by Andrew or Rocky? Both. Both. Okay, Both. That's, that's Either. It's worse uh, names. Uh, okay. Either. Um, Rocky, I, I kind of uh, generally best know yet. So, um, Rocky Stroke, Andrew used to be um, very quick. I kind of first came across your running generator, I think. Yes. Uh, and then um, the stuff in the middle, and Sarches. Yes. Um, and then Droger. Yes. And then uh, Spark. Yes. <laughs> and yes. then Fonterra. Yes. Then, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so three times uh, agency CEO of the year, Yeah, I think. Yeah. Does I still do that? I don't know. I don't think they do, actually. Yeah. Which is good for me because, I mean, nobody yeah. else had to do it. Well, uh, in 2006 or something, at the FDs, they had Advertising Professional of the Year. Oh. They won an only time. Right. And I won. <laughs> and it's never been, they never held it since because it was such a ridiculous decision. There's not many professional people in advertising, yeah. are there? Uh, so I am the reigning. Certainly not you. The reigning advertising professional of the year. Um, and when, when I, I talked to uh, Rocky about doing this podcast, he promised to let me, let me, let us know uh, what the uh, New Zealand CEOs think of advertising agencies. Hmm. So we'll save that. We'll save that for later. Okay. Uh, but first, how did you get into this business? Where are you from originally? Originally from Wanganui. It didn't have an H in my day, but it does mm. have now. Um, and I, through school, I firstly wanted to be an architect, and I, but I couldn't do physics. Yeah. Didn't know that. So then I, my mate, best mate from school, John Towis, his dad was an accountant, and he had two afternoons off a week playing golf. So I yeah. thought I want to be an accountant. Yeah, it makes sense. So I went to Massey University in Palmerston North, but yeah. I, I was no good at accountancy. Yeah. So I couldn't do that. And then, and then Why, I had, because you couldn't do maths. You were oh, maths, I or I, just bored. I'm really good when it's basic maths. Like I get cost and revenue, but when it's balance sheets and debtors and creditors, I just kind of like my eyes glaze over. I don't know. So I, anyway, just... Yeah, I'm the same. Ba- I, basic maths, I'm really well at school. Yeah. Uh, and then I went on to do A-level maths and sure. it was shit. But yeah, I, yeah. I'm going to always run successful businesses. Good. I get the basic mm. principles, but anything more complicated than that, and, no, not my yeah. job. Anything to do with taxation, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, and then at university, uh, we had... Uh, both my parents were uh, doctors, my dad was a physician, my mum was a paediatrician, in fact my sister's a doctor too. So we were a very unbusiness-like family, yeah. but a, a family friend gave me a subscription to NBR when I was at university, and they had then that ad hoc column, yeah. 
And it was the only bit that I used to read. I used to get this. I didn't understand any of the rest of it, but I used to read it. Yeah. It was quite interesting, I thought. Yeah. And then also during um, uh, university studies, we went on a field trip down to O&M in Wellington. Yeah. And everyone was smoking furiously. You know, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite as glamorous as Mad Men, but it was kind of like, looked pretty cool. And then uh, after three years of study, I then took 18 months off and... Worked in the freezing works in Whanganui, went on the dole for six months. I used to go and um, sit in the courtroom and watch court things, go to the pub in the afternoon, do bugger all. Went back to the freezing works, and then after 18 months of that, decided I should come up to Auckland. What, what were your folks saying at this point? They when were, you have a highly educated son who's yes. um, dr- drinking all afternoon and, yes. <laughs> and going to the equivalent of Crown Court. Yes, they, they were hopeful it was a stage. Yeah. But concerned that it may not be. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were kind of like, I remember occasionally they'd say, like, any any thought of, you know, maybe, you know, a job. getting a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, but at the time, I, I always had this view, in fact, all my life I've done this as well, is that I never want to just be too sequential. Does it make sense? I, like, through all my career, I've always had three months, six month breaks, just. And people just kind of go, well, what are you going to do after that? I said, I don't know, I don't care, I'll find something. Do you know what it was the same back then? I never wanted to go from university to get a job. Yeah. I wanted to just experience life. And um, yeah. And the only downside, because I you know, was, um, was at court one day, and a school friend, Bruce Hobbs, they called his case, and he was up on a murder charge. And it was a bit worrying when I was just sitting there, and Bruce is sort of up there kind of looking at me going, why are you here? Why are you here? Yeah. And I saw him at the Red Line pub. He got acquitted, actually. The guy he hit in the pub fight was uh, deemed to have a brain hemorrhage or something. And so I had to explain to him when I saw him in the pub three months later why I was oh. there. But anyway, but yeah, so my parents were sort of gently, sort of, yeah, any chance of... Yeah, you know, oh, they, they, they gave you enough rope. So you yeah. then met, because I, I sent um, Rocky some questions, because I had suggestions from... Um, the two and a half listeners to this podcast that we should have some... Has it gone up? It was only qu- one before. Questions, yeah. Now I've got the dogs. Dogs are quite mm, good mm. fans of it now. And uh, what individuals are most helpful to your career? And th- there's three here. One of them I've never even heard of. But first of all, Graham Hunter gave you a first break at Colenso. Yeah, so he... So I came to Auckland and um, I had sort of two or three things that I could have done. One was in an IT company called Burroughs. Anyway, and Graham Hunter was... He had a media department of 10 people and he wanted a number two and he was looking for somebody aged. It was back in those days when you'd be really specific on the thing. Yeah. He wanted somebody 25, 35 with five. A male. Uh, probably. Ma- male, <laughs> white, <laughs> heterosexual. Yeah. And um, with five plus years experience in the media. Well, of course, I had none of that. I was out of the freezing works of the doll. Yeah. And brilliantly, you know, for me and, and, and God bless him, he decided... To give me a chance, and um, based on what? Based on an interview, or yeah, an interview. And I think he just thought um, that I don't know. There was something in me that he thought he could develop. And literally, I sat by his desk most of the time, and he was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And the reason I, you know, put that down is I think in this industry, you only need one chance to get in the door. And you should be forever grateful of whomever gives you that opportunity. Yeah. And once you're in the door, you'll either you will sink or swim, and it'll be nobody else's fault other than your own. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And and so to me, 
yeah, I'd say to anybody contemplating getting into the industry, and I say this to people repeatedly, just get in, find a way in. Yeah, the hardest, uh, it's a lot harder to get in than it is to stay in. Yeah. Yeah, Which totally. is not necessarily totally, a good totally. thing, but no, totally because because once once you're in, um, you know, I mean, I mean, agencies, I mean, the best ones particularly are very conscious of their um, their culture. Mm-hmm. They're very conscious of cost, right? Yeah, and they're conscious of client relationships, and so they are very um, wary of letting anybody into that ecosystem and I get it if you're um, good and cheap and amenable then you can start off and, yeah. and, and whether it, it's starting off as a, a creative or a suit or in the yeah. post room yeah. um, once you're in yeah. and the, the rest of the agency goes oh, yeah. this person is okay then yeah, 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 yeah. go yeah. on yeah totally and, and usually the, the other thing about agencies is if you do get in there and you do the things you've just talked about there's usually three or four people who will notice and go, I want to, yeah. you know, guide that person or help it or give that person another opportunity or another step up or yeah. whatever. And so that's what Graham Hunter did for me. And it was it was great, you know. And that, that office was run by a guy called Gary Gwynn, who was an amazing. In fact, actually, if I can just digress a little bit slightly. Okay, um, we, we might edit at this point. But that's yeah, right. Keep that's going. Right. Yeah, <laughs> edit, that's right. Um, it's interesting because in the history of New Zealand advertising, yep. years and years ago, there's ages called Charles Haynes. There was a split away from that, which was Colenso, yeah. Roger McDillard, etc., which was just a phenomenon in New Zealand. And then emerged Mackay King. Yeah. There was then bought by Saatchi's, and then emerged after that the rise of Colenso and then Sarchi's. DDB and others. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because back then, you know, Colenso was was enormous. You know, and Gary Gwynn, who ran the Auckland office, and Roger McDillard ran was the Was it still in College Hill? Yeah. Yeah. Just literally um, uh, on the right-hand side going up. Black building. 33 College Hill there were. Right. Not 100 College Hill where they are now. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that, that was that. And then I was in and Graham Hunter, I, you know, thank you very much for so that. So you started in media? I started in media. And then, and then you ran up the suit side. I was then asked to go to Wellington to run media for there. Yeah. And then a guy called Ian, forget his name, left. And <laughs> uh, he was the suit on BNZ and a couple of other bits of business. And then Roger... And Len Potts, who was then create, amazing, legendary, creative person, um, called me in his office one Monday morning and said, Look, we want you to become the suit to switch, lead me to do this. And I remember saying to him, how long have I got to make up my mind? And Roger, in typical Roger style, said, look, you just take whatever time you want, but but we're telling the client you're doing it in two hours' time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so I, that's when I switched to suit, and I loved it. And... Um, you know, I loved, uh, we were blessed that BNZ decided to pick up the sponsorship of the America's Cup. Yeah. And we did quite a famous thing called Sailing Away, which was a video. Um, and uh, and it was huge for them. And, and I loved all that stuff. So how how long, because I don't, I've, the, this is uh, for purely selfish reasons, yep. in a sense, the history of New Zealand advertising since 2000. Yeah. that's what I came up yep, with. Sure. I know. I'm pretty well, the world starts when you start. Exactly. Um, we all live in our own little uh, world bubbles. Um, so, so when I came to, to New Zealand, you uh, you were on generator, I think. So, I think how so. did you go from uh, a, a account director at, at the bank at Glenzo to running a startup? Um, well, there was I went to Saatchi's London between that. Right. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, how did sorry. You, how did that come about? Well, so I and what and what year was that? There was an eighty. Seven, I think I left Saatchi's 
I left Colenso Wellington, Colenso Wellington, and decided, um, and you know, I had a brilliant job and it's just up, but yeah. I, I threw it in and, and went travelling, did my OE around in a combi van around Europe, and then um, went to London, and I went and approached ten agencies, and eight of them agreed to interview me. One of the interviews didn't go so well, which was with um, CDP, Collard Dickinson Pierce. Yeah. They had brilliant, a brilliant reel with Hoffice Bread and Radio Rentals and yeah. Hamlet Cigars. Yeah. And I didn't know there was a famous Hamlet commercial with a guy in a photo booth. Yeah. And so the MD there was playing his reel. And, uh, and I said, I love all that stuff. I don't understand why that guy is getting electrocuted. Right. Because I never knew what a photo booth was. <laughs> Because I was from Wanganui, and, uh, and he sort of looked at oh, me. Oh, the flashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought it was electrocution, but anyway, oh God. I didn't get that job. Who, uh, who was the MD there? I can't remember who he was actually. I didn't get another job either, which was um, which was with an agency who had a insurance client in Perth, and they said, "Do you mind travelling?" And I said, "No, not at all," because when I go to Perth, Perth Scotland, well. I thought it was Perth, Australia. Oh, right. Because I said, well, when I go and see them, I can just pop across to New Zealand. And, of course, they went, well, all right. <laughs> and then, why not? There you worked. Where you worked. Who I did, was, who uh, did you see there? I, I went, there was a woman who was the MD. I can't remember her name. But they decided, they had going through this weird stage, some yeah. of those people do, where they went, we can psychometric test people and mm. decide whether they're good or not. Yeah. And so they psychometric, it cost them something like £10,000 at the time. Psychometric tested me. And I, on this, these 13 personalities, which, and one to 10 is neither good nor bad, yeah. but normally you're at a one or a 10 on any of these 13 things once. And I was a one or a 10, seven out of the 13 times. And a they polarizing said, character. Yeah. Well, they, actually, what, what, what they said, which is interesting, they said you are, there's, as an extreme Antipodean. So normally, Antipodean, you know, um, uh, Australia and New mm. Zealanders will be at those extremes too. Whereas the Brits, I mean, you know this, they're all in that sort of four, five, six area mm. by and large, right? You know, with maybe a slight breakout occasionally. Yeah, five, five and a half. Yeah. <laughs> five and a half. Mm. And so I didn't get that job. And then I went to Sarchis. I was interviewed by a guy called David Weldon. Not Walden, David Weldon, who ran uh, oh, um, Silk Cup and a few other... And he said, look, he didn't have anything, but he thought I'd be well-suited to the Castlemaine 4X account with a guy called Pete Watkins. And right. do you know Pete Watkins? Ever? I don't know. Oh. Can I tell a story on Pete Watkins? You, yeah, Pete Watkins. Well, this, you see, this is allowed because <laughs> uh, you know, New Zealand advertising from 2000, but I'm London advertising from 1990. Oh, right. Well, so, there you go. Uh, yeah, it, in there. It fits yeah. in. So Pete was, uh, at that stage, he was group head, but, but anyway, he... Um, of a, they were 10 account groups, and he was one of them. And then he went on to be um, joint MD with a guy, David Kershaw, and yeah. the MD was a guy... But Bill David Kershaw was now MNC yes. waiting through shit. Yes, and Bill Muirhead yep. did MNC too. Yep. And so they had joint MDs, and, and Paul Arden was the uh, creative director. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> Pete was sort of... He was sort of... Um, Beer and rock and roll motorbikes, jeans, and David Kershaw was sort of opera and yeah. you know Ferraris and whatever. Yeah. And um, but Pete gave me this job, and 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 eventually I went from having a Ford Cortina estate, which was my own car. Four years later, I was on the board, and they gave me a Porsche 911 as a company car, which is very good. But as a part of that, we had these intercom boxes on our desks. There was only the top twenty people out of a thousand or whatever. 
and occasionally the button, the buzzer would go, and you know I was one of the top 20 people, mm. but sometimes it would just be Pete going, which meant, let's go around to the pub and have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and this would be at 11.30 in the morning, do you know? Anyway, this guy Pete was amazing. I then came back from there to join Sarchi's and... Okay, okay. Sorry, can we so, stay in London for yeah, a bit? Yeah. Because um, I didn't realise that you were there at that time, and that was the one of the the eighties in London advertising. Yep. Was um, brilliant. Yeah. I know because I wasn't there, yeah. and everyone who was tells me it yeah. was. So you were at and at Sarchi's were in their pomp. Yeah, at, they, at the they, time. Were, they were going well. Um, extraordinarily well. They they were the. Um, Head and shoulders, the biggest, flashiest yep. agency yeah. that everyone had heard of. Yeah, most um, famous in yeah. London. And Jeremy Clark and Graham Fink yes, were there. They were there. Fink Clark. In fact, they did while I was there. Not that I had anything to do with it, but they did the um, British Airways face commercial with Hugh Hudson. Yeah, yeah, which was just mind blowing. Uh, yes, so they were there. Well, they, they were, as because uh, um, you obviously know Mike O'Sullivan, yes. Mike O'Sullivan and I were working together at that time. Yes. And we were at college in the School of Communication Arts in London, and uh, uh, Jeremy Clark was my tutor. Ah, right. So I used to, we used to uh, go and see him and Fink. Right. And uh, that was an extraordinary, um, extraordinary experience. And... Um, <laughs> They yeah. were very eccentric. So we might have crossed you in the yeah. corridor yeah. at that time. They were very eccentric. I mean, James Lowther was one of the, uh, I don't know, he's now at MNC. Yeah. And Paul Arden. Yeah. Paul Arden was a very eccentric uh, British upper class gent. But to his Or he gave that impression. I don't know that actually, he was. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I think he was, like James Lowther was a lord. Yeah. Lord yeah. Lowther, as still is. Um, uh, Paul... I think you're right. I think Paul sort of turned himself into that. Yeah. But I remember one day he Paul Paul was very unpredictable, and um, at one stage he went, "We're letting stuff through that shouldn't be going to clients." So he said, "I'm at my desk every morning at eight o'clock. Every piece of work that this agency produces before it goes to a client has to come through me, and yeah. if it doesn't, I'll fire the person who yeah. takes it to the client." And um, so, you know, it's always quite a terrifying thing because you never quite knew what he would be like. And and, and one of my clients was um, Castaway and Forex, and we got a famous campaign called Australians Wouldn't, wouldn't Give a Forex for Anything Else, yeah. which was all set in the desert with, you know, who, Henry Blunt. Who wrote that? Um, <coughs> James Lowther wrote it. Yeah. And he wrote it because even though he was Lord Lowther, when he was 25, he was sent to work on a... Buckaroo would have been. Yeah, yeah. Buckaroo. And, um, and he just thought it was a cool line. Remember, I went and saw Paul Arden with this poster with typically a blaring sun and a couple of yeah. guys drinking a beer and doing something. And um, and he just said, I see green spiders. And I say, oh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes, why don't we put green spiders into these posters? And I said, oh, look, I'll think about that, but if you could just approve this, I'll go and sell this <laughs> to the client. Well, worry about that next week. Yeah. And uh, and to be fair, when I went to saw him next week, he had forgotten about green spiders. But to, but but he actually was one of those people who it was his way of just opening minds. Yeah, do, 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 uh, he was quite extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, um. To to uh, listeners out there, don't know who Paul Arden um, is or was. He was creative director of Sarches, as I say, when they were in their pomp. He also wrote a couple of very. Uh, pretty well-known books and they spread outside advertising it's yeah. not how good you are it's how good you want to be how great you want to be yeah 
Uh, I w- went on to be a director. He died, sadly. Yes. Uh, a couple of years ago. Five, five, five years ago or so. Um, and yeah, uh, we went to, to see him when we were, we were at college. And, wow. and he was a guy, he would, he would look at your book, look at your work, and things were either the best thing he'd ever seen. Yeah. And, uh, and we did a campaign for Vogue, and he said, that line is genius, you must... Um, patent it or you know, take a copyright error and now yeah. go straight to the lawyer and like yeah okay and other things were the you know the worst piece of sure. shit that anyone sure. had ever done but yeah. he was never boring no he was never boring and to be fair to to keep that tradition going of Sarchis and, and their creative stand especially with the mercurial people that were around yeah because um, yeah, Jeremy uh, then came out here he at did, some yes. point didn't he but uh, it didn't go that well or didn't last that long or I, I, I think there was a, a phase where um, English guys came out and they tried, tried to introduce London to New Zealand. Yeah. Which didn't didn't quite work. No. And I think um, with you know, maybe Mike leading the charge, when I came out, he said, uh, Mike O'Sullivan, he said to me, the last thing you must ever say is when I was in London... This right. is what we did, and I'm pretty sure that, that Jeremy Clark was doing that. Yeah. And bizarrely, I was uh, in the waiting room to come out to New Zealand in uh, London. So I'd got a, a job offer out here, and I was, I think, doing a bit of freelance at YNR, which was Rainy Kelly Campbell Rolf. Yes. YNR in London. Yes. And Jeremy Clark was on his way back from New Zealand and he was at YNR Europe doing some freelance and we kind of crossed uh, in the corridor and he obviously didn't recognise me but I thought how you know what a career's moving in opposite directions but yeah yeah Yeah. there you go Eric how long were you at Sarches? four years four and a half years yeah so you're there till Uh, 91 yeah I I was probably going out with a girl from Sarches but we don't mind going for that I hope you know the girl I was going out I'll ask you when when we're off (laughs) Off mic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, and so I love that. And then decided it was time to come back home. And Roger McDonnell wanted me to run HKM, which at the time, Hutchison and Knowles Marinkovic, so uh, Mike Hutchison and... Mike Knowles and... And Marco Marinkovic, yeah. who, who sort of were having differences of opinion so they decided to be good to and, and actually so Roger said we'll fly you out I said well when I come out I'd love to have the opportunity to go and see a couple of other people and so I met up with Peter Cullinane from Sarchis yeah. and then came out here and then <clears throat> took the job as um, one of three general managers at Sarchis in Auckland and alongside who were the other two? David Walden and, yeah, no, and to- a guy called Tony Thomas who you yeah, probably haven't heard of who I, I'm not too sure what he, he went from there and he there's something to do with Team New Zealand. He was general manager of them or some or other. This is getting real interesting. You're listening to Truth and Soul. So you went from there to somebody said, hey, I've got an idea, why don't you... Or, or you said, I've got an idea, I want to go and do my own agency. No, what happened was... So I, 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 I mean, throughout my sort of you know, career, I've only ever worked most places for four or five years and then I, I a combination of I get bored or I feel there's probably somebody better to do it or whatever so I just decided to leave at that stage <coughs> and um, and so I, I left and took six months off and just mucked around and then two of the creative from Sarchis, James Mock and Matt Simpkins approached me and said 
are you thinking about doing anything? Because we'd like to come and work for you, or work with you, I should say. And I went, oh, I'm not too sure, actually. And then they said, oh, Nick Bayless is also keen. And was also, that at They were all at Saatchi's yeah. at the time. And um, and also, um, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but I will, but Louise Gregg, who was at Saatchi's, who's now married Roger McDonnell, she was the research lady, an amazing lady. And, it's, and there was a... She... We had some talks about her coming, but anyway, that didn't eventuate. But um, so then we set up Generator, and um, and we were hounded by Sarchis legally. They got really nasty, and um, but we just ignored them. Actually, actually, we didn't ignore them. We took them really seriously. And then when these letters kept coming, and I just wrote this abusive notes on this fax and sent it back to a guy, John Robert Fardell from Russell McVeigh, mm. saying, you know blah, 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 swearing a lot, and never heard from them again. So then we went on a merry way with Generator, and and, and I love Generator, you know. I so think. so the the four of you sat down in a room yep. and went, okay, we're going to start this agency, so how how does how did you approach that? How do you get, because you've got, you got, sure. you got nowhere to work, you haven't no. got a name, no. you haven't got a proposition. Well, we didn't have a name, but, we, but um, we did, I've still got the facts, the... Um, Thing of, of the Matt Kit Simpkins wanted to call it adjustable wrench, which I never quite understood. And um, there was another name. I, I would hate to be the receptionist to, to say uh, adjustable wrench. Good morning. <laughs> well, the, well, the worst thing is too. We we um we did some work in the beginning with a guy called Andrew Cook Senior, who's property developer, mm. and he said, "Oh, look, we can either pay you in cash or give you an apartment in Metropolis." And uh, Matt Simpkins named it Metropolis, and um. And so we took the apartment, which was silly because we could have done with the cash, but anyway. And then Matt set up this business called Evil Tyrant Corp, was mm. the name of the apartment holder. So whenever you went to check in, you know, you had to rock up at reception and say, I'm here from Evil Tyrant Corp yeah. to, um, you know, <laughs> go and access the apartment. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we, we set off fairly naively and um, we had a big party to begin with. And apparently... It's very important. Very uh, important. Children and start, important. starting to have a big party with you there. <laughs> now, the second thing to remember, too, is at a party when a potential client approaches one of the key people and says, I'd like to give you some business, it's, it's important to remember that because there was a lady called Bridget Vanderside from Radio Network who was there, hmm. and she called me up about two weeks later and said, why has nobody called me? And I said, about what? She hmm. said, well, I was at your party and spoke to one of you and said I wanted to give you some business. Yeah. I said, oh, sorry about that. Anyway, yeah. so now, <laughs> now yeah. I'm listening. Anyway, so we had that, and then we got Firestone, which was our first major bit of business. A- and in the pitch, one of the clients fell asleep, which was not a not a, an, a ring endorsement. But again, kids, if you're listening to this, don't don't take that personally. Just keep going. <laughs> Just keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because uh, because we did actually end up winning that business, and then we went on. We we actually um, we did very well. We we got Telstra, which is the Australian telco. We got Sony. We got Red Bull. We got Singapore Airlines, Mercury Energy, BMW. Uh, we were we were helped too, by the way. Roger McDonnell gave us the old Colenso boardroom table and chairs, but yeah. unfortunately. And our first picture of BMW. Bugged. Well, the, the backs kept falling off the chairs. 
<laughs> and when you're BMW and all of our precision engineering, that's yeah. what I did. And then we actually... That's a d- double-edged present from McDonald's. Yeah, it probably was. Yeah. They probably had hidden microphones. But there was one where every, not surprisingly, every year, Nick Bayless would organise a big Christmas lunch. And we were at the Monkey Bar in K Road having Christmas drinks on the 22nd of December. And at one o'clock, uh, DB turned up and said, we want to give you our business. DB Draft and a couple of other brands, Monteith's. And then at three o'clock, BMW turned up and said, we want to give you our business mm. as well. So it was mm. quite a big... That was a Christmas. It was quite that a, was a Christmas, Christmas lunch. lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and we said, that's great, but we can't think about it just yet, but we'll be back here about Jan 10. Yeah, be back in yeah. February. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it was good. So, and they were, they were good times. And, and you know, then Oliver Maisie joined yeah. us. Um, and we had Justin Mode was there. Yeah. Um, Cal Rose, who was my old client from Sony, he decided he wanted to come and join an advertising agency, and that that never normally works, and it didn't this time either. He 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 didn't enjoy it. It's interesting that whole sort of clients joining agencies. Thing, yes, you know. I remember um, Martin Halloran saying to me that it was it was always a bit difficult because clients are used to people returning their phone calls and right. being polite to them, right. and and um, as you know, that's not always the case no, on the no. agency side. You have to be a little bit more persistent and have a sure. slightly bigger, uh, thicker skin than maybe clients are used to having. Yeah, so well, it's so true. It can and work, but yeah, and, and, and it, it, well, uh, Brian at uh, FCB. Yes. Uh, Brian Crawford. Brian Crawford, yeah. Yeah, a rare exception, yeah. I think. Um, but I think, um, <clears throat> you know, Carl Rose exactly the same thing. He missed having control, Yeah. right? He, he was he was involved with a tiny slither of their business versus, in this case, it was Firestone. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we, we, we grew and we had some good times. And, um, and you were approached by? Ian Elliott from uh, Bates in Australia because at George the time Pence. Bates were uh, you know uh, 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 kind of mid-sized they network. had yes well they were quite big in Australia but they were sort of on the way down sun, in the sunset of the George Pets was a big iconic business who had yeah and it was till I went there and yeah, finished it off but, but no yeah. no um, what's the word sense of creativity or anything yeah I mean I joined the board yeah. of George Pets he used to go to board meetings and say should we share some of our work well, hmm. they just looked at me strangely when I said that, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so Ian Elliott came and saw us and said, basically, well, the first thing he said, I'm not Father Christmas, I'm not here to buy you. I said, all right, fair enough. Well, two weeks later, the deal was done. But anyway, put that aside. He had Bates, which was in the viaduct. Um, above Kermadec? Above Kermadec, yeah. yeah, with about 75 people. Um, and we had about 35 and he said, I want to basically buy you and you guys go and run that place. And um, and he said there was only one stipulation, that was that we had to take over those offices, which given it was America's Cup time, and we had this beautiful office up there. So we sold the business yeah. and had a contract to run that for three years. I, I remember lo- um, looking at your office, I think I went there maybe, maybe once to the bar at some stage, but going, I, it would be so difficult to do any work. Yeah. On a Friday afternoon, yeah. in an office overlooking, yeah, um, yeah the, the fire duct, which would generally be going off on a sure. Friday afternoon. Well, it was also hard because at the bottom of the lift was turn left, and two meters away was Danny Doolan's, yeah. which, which you know, <laughs> yeah. was pretty tempting. Yeah, but they were good times, you know, and and um, you know, it was uh, yeah. So we we loved that, and I, and I did that for three years. And, and Bates. 
baits disintegrated at some stage? Uh, they... Because they no, they no longer exist. They, no, they, they then became Wainar, didn't they? Didn't Wainar Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah Wainar. Oh, but that, that was, yeah, quite a bit later, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. In fact, ironically, a guy, David Hearn, who's now chairman of A2 Milk, was running um, Cordiant Group, which is the owner of, of Bates. But anyway, they, they, were, they were living on past history, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. Um, but still. But, um, so we did that, and then I left there, and then Kevin Roberts had been approached, or had taken on the job as uh, CEO of um, Saatchi's Worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. So we're interested to get Ken Roberts on here. Uh, so he is originally from Lancaster, I think. Yes. Or is it Lancaster? Yes. Yeah. Lancashire. In, in Lancashire. Is that the same thing as Lancaster? Uh, Lancaster is a town in Lancashire, I think. I don't know Lancashire terribly well. But, you know, He's Man Liverpool City. I know that. He's Man City. He's Man City. Oh, it's only come lately. Um, and so he he was he was marketing director of Pepsi? He was Pepsi, um, then Lion. Yeah. Yeah, he was um, MD of Lion. So he went from... Yeah, uh, client to agency. Side to agency. Yeah, at yeah. a very high level, I guess. Yes. Uh, yeah. He also uh, worked at P&G for a while. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, I've always found him amazing. He and his then-wife, Ro. Um, you know, he, he encouraged you back in the Sarchis, and he said, you tell me what you want to do, you know, basically, so you tell me what you want to be paid, and, you know, come uh, back and do it. So and this was to open... This, sorry, so when you've been cited before, it was in Wellington? When I've been at Saatchi before, I was running Auckland. Right. Auckland. Um, after, yeah. And then this was now running New Zealand. Right. Um, and so Kevin Kenrick, who was then our major client at Telecom, yeah. said to me, the guy that you should get as your creative partner is Mike O'Sullivan. Yeah. So, um, and Mike and I had already been so having it's, it's, some discussions. It's Kevin, you got lots to answer for. He has got lots to answer for. Um, and so Mike and I partnered up and and it was <clears throat> we had a great run it, it was difficult to begin with because we had at that stage um a lot of the creative resource was in wellington yeah a lot of the clients were in auckland and yeah. a lot of the suits were in auckland and and i may and we had a couple of options including closing down sarchi's wellington which was still pretty iconic but the decision that i made was we were going to make auckland and wellington self-sufficient so Whatever clients you had, you needed to have the creative resource and the yeah. suits to match that. So it basically meant a few more suits in Wellington, a few less creatives, and more creative in Auckland and whatever. And um, and that was tough. That was really tough because we had some really good people we had to let go. And yeah. and and but at the end of the day, my belief is that increasingly clients like to have interaction with creatives, and actually. A lot of the best work is done sort of almost in an iterative way. And so therefore, you know, saying to the client, well, no, we can see the creatives next Tuesday week doesn't really work. Yeah, you know? I agree. It's not the, the, the old London style of um, you would never see yeah, sure. the client. Yeah. And I remember Mike Cousins, who is um, creative director of um, Y&R, one yeah. of the creative directors I worked on at Y&R, uh, he, if, you know, if if he saw you going from a car to a client, sure. you go, well, well, sure. "What the hell are you doing? It's not your job. It's not your job. It's their job to sell it." Yeah. But you knew that you had a far better chance of getting work through if you sold it. Yeah, totally. Which yeah. was um, 
maybe a result of the power shifts. Maybe, maybe because the the creators un- understood the work better. But it, I, I think it always it always helped. I think it helps, and and also it means that if a client's got a small issue with one part of the idea, yeah. you know, quite often the best creators can go, well, that's fine. Well, what we could do instead of that is do this. Yeah. Do you know when suddenly you've sold versus actually, if you're not careful, you, you know, the whole work could have got rejected. Yeah. Because so, you know, and I don't know, I mean, I think that where you have great synergy between, you know, the key client and the key creative and the suits sort of get out of the way, that's yeah. magic. That's that's where magic really happens. That's my view, anyway. You know? Yeah, well, it, it the suit should hopefully have the relationship in, in such a, a stage with a client that if the creative's making an ass of themselves, the suit sure. kind of picks up on that and goes, um, yeah. okay, Brian, perhaps if you, you know, let's reconvene next off. week, shall we? <laughs> um, but the, yeah, the other point you made on the list here, it's not about selling the work, it's about getting clients to buy. It, it's, I absolutely agree. It's about, yeah. the, it's about the relationship and having the relationship sure. in such a stage yeah. that and and uh, I think creative meeting the clients helps because sure. they understand exactly what the problem is. You're taking sure. away the Chinese whispers, and they go, totally. "Oh, okay." Totally. Hopefully, anyway. I think so. And and so the, where that came from was Paul sort of asked me what was one thing that I don't think some people understand. And my, and my comment was, I think agencies are too obsessed with trying to sell stuff yep. versus understanding what clients want to buy. And and I think it's quite interesting. There was a great quote around churches. And why they're not succeeding, and and somebody said it's because they're answering questions that aren't being asked. Do you know? And yeah. I and I think it's yeah. the same. You know, I, I see too many times where agencies are going, oh, we've got this great little, I don't know, adjustable scissors yeah. in green, and the client goes, but I sell beer, so I don't quite yeah. want to know about that. Yeah. And it's kind of it's extreme, obviously, but it's but at the end of the day, if you do genuinely understand what they want to buy, and clients. What do they want to buy? They want to buy, obviously, success, right? For their brand, for their, they want to buy success for themselves. Well, it, it's the yeah. purpose. It's, yeah. what, it's what they're actually trying to do. And the awful thing is that what they're trying to do may not actually be what they say they're trying to do. Of course. Yeah. Uh, Never uh, is. A, a frightening example <laughs> for this for me was working on the Australian Defence Force when yes. I was in Australia. Yeah. And I kind of came on halfway through and, and the... Um, uh, the creative team had already been working on something, and I went, "Well, oh, that's really interesting." But no one's going to, no one's going to join the the army when they, the Australian Defence when they they see that. Um, and I was quietly taken aside and informed that the object of the recruitment drive was not in the slightest to get anyone to join the Australian Defence Force. It was to do a chest thumping patriotic ad on air that would help the Australian ruling party at the time get re-elected oh. and I, I was like okay so obvious okay this is um, <laughs> sunny me yeah I'm sorry I'm an old fashioned creative who tries to if it's sure. recruitment tries to get sure. people to recruit I'll, I'll keep quiet back sure. off but yeah there was a famous story I remember uh, in London I know we're not supposed to talk too much about London but um <clears throat> when I was in London yeah when right. I was in London of a picture was happening and <clears throat> they had a budget of five million pounds was a government sort of business yeah. and one agency went in and said well look we can do this for two million pounds or whatever it was and they didn't get the business they said, well why not 
because we have to spend five million pounds. Yes. Don't you understand that? Yeah. If we don't spend that five million pounds, we don't get it next year. Yeah. Do you know, it's a classic case of you like, you know, if you don't understand where the client's coming from, then you're not going to win. Like there's no money. And now uh, with uh, FMCG clients, they come along and go, okay, we, we need to make a, a television ad. Uh, and they didn't really care what the ad was. It's just that they promised the trade that they were going to sure. make a television ad. Be on TV. Whatever it was, they had they had to do it. Yeah, yeah. There was actually I just heard one story too around Kevin Robertson line, which we presented some uh, some ideas. Well, actually, when we first when I first joined Sarchi's, um, line hated us. Hmm. There was a guy Brian Cleal who subsequently I still have a coffee with now. He, he's sort of seventy five, eighty now, but anyway, and. Um, and he hated us, and but eventually he chose to love us, right, right. and give us all a whole lot more business. Anyway, one of the bits of business he gave us was a lion red, and we were presenting one night with Roy Mears, and the clients, rather than doing the one big idea that was a great idea, they wanted to do these two mediocre ideas. Mm. And um, remember sitting in the boardroom about eight o'clock one night, and Roy's going, well, "What are we going to do?" Roy Mears said, "What are we going to do?" And I said. Okay, leave me home. And I called up Kevin Roberts and I said, I need to come and see you. And that was pretty, Kevin was pretty protective of his home and his time. Mm. And he said, okay, must be urgent, come around. So we went around, he said, what's happening? And um, I said, well, we've presented these ideas to your marketing team. Sorry, uh, uh, this is when Kevin Roberts was at Lion, not was at Sarchi's. Was at Lion, correct. Yeah. And um, they want to buy these two really mediocre ideas. And, but there's one great idea. And I remember he said, leave it to me. And the next morning, and the great idea was a, it was an idea called Red Blooded, yeah. um, which was a, Michael Hurst was the lead actor in the commercial. It was a great commercial. And, um, With a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all from different mothers, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and, um, and the next day, the marketing guy called up and said, oh, we've had a good think, and we're going to do Red Blooded. I said, that's oh, good. Brilliant. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. But actually, the party was the MD of Lion at the time. Um, of So Kevin was the group MD, and the MD was a guy called Doug Mackay, who now is the chairman of BNZ. And and um, he, I went around to play tennis the next night at Kevin Roberts's place with Doug Mackay and another guy. And um, and Kevin's wife said, oh, hi, Andrew, nice to see you again. And you could see Doug Mackay going, Okay. When were you last here? And in fact, at the launch of it, when the trade loved it, I said to Doug, look, sorry about this, but I did get you go behind your back. And and I don't normally do that. It's not what I do. And he was great. He said, look, if you were complaining about me, I'd have a problem. If you're doing something to make our work better, I've got no problem. Hmm. And I think that's a great hallmark of great clients, isn't it? It is about making the idea better, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I guess the... on on occasion that's not what is driving the project is making the idea better making themselves better the the kind of uh, political and career um, influences behind it but I'll I'll, uh, I'll gloss over that that's true Uh, the the range of creative talent at Sarches at at that time was um, extraordinary with uh, Jay and Andy yeah. uh, and um, Toby? Matty, Matt and Dave. Matt and Dave? To- to- Toby Tony. Tony. Toby. Toby. Not actually, what's his actual real name? He declared it. It's Chatwin Talbot. I think that's right, Toby. I'm sure I get an email. And I never thought of him as pompous either, so I was quite surprised to hear that. Well, you obviously never met him. Toby, Steve Beck. 
Uh, Backy, yeah. yeah. He was yeah. there. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and most of those people, all of them, I think, have gone on to be creative directors sure. in, in their own right. For sure. I, and I think actually one of Mike's great talents, he's got lots of good talents, but one of them was attracting those kinds of people, both at a senior level yeah. to, and giving them the freedom to get on doing with it, but also at a, at a lesser level, you know, Maddie and Dave and Andy and Jay and, and yeah. giving them an opportunity. Like, you know, it's pretty amazing. Um, So uh, uh, it's potentially uh, unanswerable financial question, but it looked like the creative department was staffed with such talent and heavyweights that how on earth could Sarches afford to do that? And the suspicion was always that you were allowed to run the agency at a lesser profit level than some of the other agencies in the group. You don't have to answer that. No, no, I don't think we did. I, I, no, no, we, we made, always made, really good yeah, money. Figures. Yeah, figures. Yeah, you know, really good money. And um, it was always a challenge, mm. right? And there's, there's no doubt about that. And, and, but we always backed ourselves as well, mm. you know? And, and I've always had this belief that um, if the kind of relationships, we have the creative firepower, yeah. right, you should better make good money. Yeah. You know, you've just got to be very careful when you loosen the purse strings. They think that's the hallmark of a great agency accountant or finance director is sort of knowing when to sort of loosen the purse strings. Everybody yeah. can tighten them all the time, but, yeah. you know, knowing when you're just going to sort of release the money a wee bit. Yeah. From my experience at DDB and, you know, uh, latterly with my own place, investing... In, investing in the uh, in staff and in the business is sometimes difficult when with the the um, financial constraints from outside. It's very difficult to go right. Well, we're going yeah. to do this, and so where's the immediate return on that? Well, sure. there isn't an immediate return on that. Sure. But I think it's harder now because business, I think clients are, <clears throat> and whether we get into the subject, but I think I think there's been quite a seismic shift and agencies losing relevance with clients and not adding the value that I think they used to add. Okay, we can, yeah. we can, we can get into this Isn't now. What, what, yeah, so it's, you know, what do the um, New Zealand CEOs think of agencies? Well, I think, I think the, um, firstly, they spend much less time thinking about them than they used to. Do you know, like, and, and that's a, that's I, a I pity. I that. yeah. You know, um, so, so uh, you know, not back in the old days, but, but you know, building brands and all that sort of stuff is a much bigger part of what a, or what a, a CEO might have done. And, but I think so two things happened. One was, one was, I think, the world got more complicated for CEOs, but equally agencies and in some cases their client marketing directors um, went off on less and less relevant paths. You know, and CEOs, you know, I've had the pleasure of, of it's, it's it's the part of my role that I almost, I most loved, even when I was in the agency side mm. in the last five years, that's what I've done, basically as partner with CEOs. Um, and they're without doubt, you know, they are, they are so open to big ideas that will help them, but they are equally so, what's the word, um, time precious that... You know, if you don't deliver some value to them pretty quickly, they, you know, get back in the diary. In fact, I, I won't say who it was, but, but one of the CEOs I worked with said, oh, look, I've got such and such from the agency coming to see me. And I, you know, and they were sort of asking me if I was all right. So I don't give a toot. And, um, and this person said, well, I know what's going to happen. They're going to come and see me. You know, I'm going to give them my views on, you know, 
that relationship and nothing will come of it, right? And I think that's a real tragedy, you know? And that's why I talk about, like, thinking about what they want to buy. To do that, you've got to listen to what they want, right? Well, I, I, I absolutely think so, mm-hmm. and I, I tried. So I spent most of um, my um, time in New Zealand as, as, a, 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 as a creative director or yeah. uh, ECD, but I, I spent, I don't know, 18 months at... at um, BCNF thanks to as CEO and yeah. I tried in that time to get closer yeah. and to talk and listen to CEOs and I found it very hard to get hold of him. Now right. it may it may well be that, that your interpersonal skills are more suited to such a role than mine, but yeah. it was it was kind of disappointing. I, I that I just wanted to yeah. hear because you're hearing things Third hand, yeah, sure. Uh, is, uh, the, the CEOs are going, are going to the to the you know executive team, right. We're going to do this, this, and this, and the marketing directors are, are, are kicking down to the agency saying we're going to do this. And yeah. sometimes it's really useful to yeah, uh, totally. find actually what they want to do. I th- I'd be surprised. I mean, I think if if they feel you're not there selling something, if they feel that you're genuinely there to listen, and then you are genuinely going to um. Can I go right? These are the five things that I heard, and therefore agency. Yeah. On these three things, we can make a material difference. So let's focus on these three things. I'd be staggered if any CEO wouldn't go. Hey, there's value in that. And I think it's. And I genuinely go. I mean, I I think that um, clients, the need for big create, big enduring creative ideas, not small pathetic firecracker ones yeah. <laughs> is enormous their belief yeah, yeah, that but, actually, but that's the most of the demand of what as an agency yeah uh we're told oh shit sales aren't looking good uh we need a way to boost sales in the next quarter sure it's not generally we need a um a long-standing platform that will you know, help to engage people for the next fight i think but i think part of the reason for that is agencies and clients have talked themselves out of that but I'll give an example in your relationship with independent liquor and Adam Maxwell yes the client and Long White yes their brand yeah far around what a big idea that was do you know yeah I mean uh, the value to that business enormous uh, yeah for those um, who (laughs) haven't followed the world of RTDs I I was um, talking to someone there not so long ago and for years Woodstock yep Bourbon Cola was somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of the business massive massive and i think there was a a lack of investment in woodstock i think and i think this happens a lot with clients in that they have a very profitable business and they don't want to take money out of that profit in order to invest in the brand and i don't i don't think um woodstock was was invested in properly overall but yeah long white um came along as an rtd and is now that is now the the, the main um, revenue driver for independent liquor yeah. and that was a brand created out of out of nothing through yeah. um, Adam uh, Maxwell and the guys. yeah 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 and you guys you know and, yeah. I, and I think that isn't that interesting I mean to me to me the value we talk about enduring ideas yeah um, long white is an enduring idea does it make sense like yeah. it, it doesn't need to be an advertisement or whatever campaign it can be can be a brand you need to be a niche that is there and you know, um, I think, and that's where I think clients still believe in the creative firepower of agencies. So, you know, just turn that firepower to what the client wants. 
right? Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm not saying it's easy all the time, and I think there are some clients who actually give mixed signals to agencies. But, yeah. you know, if you can show value, most clients are going to keep spending if they've got a good return on investment. But if they sniff that actually it's not all that the agency's fudging that ROI, then... But, but so often it's, it's long-term. Now, uh, the number of... Uh, a, a couple of examples of campaigns. Yeah. Uh, Goldstein, yes. right, uh, which we talked about before in this podcast. When it came out, everybody went, well, what a load of shit that is. Yeah. Ten years later, it's the most popular campaign sure. in New Zealand. Sure. Stickman. Yes. Stickman uh, for pack and save. Again, yeah. oh, yeah, whatever. And, and, and it, it grows on people sure. and it gets into psyche and they... Uh, Tui, the Tui Year Right billboards. Yes. Ta- talking to Josh Moore, he said when they started working on that, everyone went, oh God, yeah, you know, someone's got to do it, you know, bang out yeah. a couple, and then uh, sure. it becomes absolutely iconic. These things yeah. take time. You don't do a campaign, and six months later, everyone goes, my God, this is, sure. uh, this is the best thing we've ever seen. And too often, I think, um, the uh, plugs are pulled, and I go, oh no, we have to yeah. change, change all that because sales haven't gone up 50%, so uh, yeah. what we're doing is wrong. I think so. I think the best clients can see the green shoots in each of those ideas you talked about. Yeah. I guarantee the, the, the clients at the time went, look, I know we're getting flack for this, that, and that, or some people aren't noticing or whatever, but actually there's enough people noticing or they should dismiss the flack and, you know. Um, you know, and I think also, I don't know, just, just expanding the... the I, I also... Mm-mm. Doing stuff that's popular, widely popular... I think is often overlooked. <laughs> Do you know? I think that I think that quite often agencies definitely, and clients are doing yeah. stuff that's, you know, popular in Grey Lynn or something or other. Yes. Do, do you know? And and I, and I think when I when I think of the best creatives that I've worked with, they've understood mass New Zealand psyche or yeah. mass UK psyche or whatever it is. Yeah. Do, do you know? And I, and I think absolutely. Well, John Webster in the UK, uh, yeah. who's, a, who's a BNP when you there, was always thought of. Uh, I mean, he won. Uh, in, in, they're talking about awards. He won. Everything, yep. but he he was the guy who would uh, test his work on the cleaners. He'd be like late at work, and sure. he'd go, "What do you think of this? I've got sure. I've got this character, sure. and, I, uh, and and hugely popular with people, uh, yep. not yep. just yeah advertising creatives." Which yeah, is- and and it's interesting too to me. I mean, apart from the fact that yes, I know that we're sort of increasingly a, a, a like a diverse audience. Uh, any country is. But actually, we still do want to be united around certain things. And I think the opportunity still for brands to create that unification is really, really valuable. Um, You know, so I I, I guess kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to knock awards too much, but but I think that actually in some cases, some of the creative award obsession has taken us down a, a not that helpful path. I, I entirely agree with you, you know? and, and have and have done for a long mm. time. I think it's a it's a weird obsession. Yeah, and I can't get the root of the why it I, it keeps growing. Sure, it, sure. It, it gets more and more rather than um, kind of less relevant. Well, I think it's it it gets more and more because I think in some cases it's quite fun to win or fun to attend. It may not be fun to judge, but it's fun to attend and win. It's it's. Seen as a, especially where you have a lot of young people coming in the industry, if they get the feeling that they could win an award and become quite famous quite quickly, then it becomes quite appealing for that agency to be that place that attracts them. Um, And there are some clients who, you know, like 
that as well. There's nothing wrong with it, apart from the fact that it's a false god. You know, it ain't reality, you know, and that's that's the danger, isn't it? Yeah, it, yes, it, it'll be nice to do a piece of work that was uh, so popular with everybody that yes. people gave you an award for it. But yeah. that's that's not the case. That's not what you get awarded for. It's, no. It's being popular with... Well, not now. With, you with, used to, right? Do you know? Um, there used to be a big uh, uh, coincidence between, yes. Yes. between the two. Yes, yeah. um, yeah, correct. A, a, a big correlation, but it's it's kind of... It's kind of lessened. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that I was talking to my wife, Nikki, about this yesterday, just around having this um, discussion. But it bothers me in a way that there's still a lot of, and I'll put you in this camp if you want, Paul, but you yeah. don't have to be in the camp, but there's a lot of still amazing creative talent with people aged 40 or 50 that still could be incredibly relevant. But for some reason, either those people have chosen and gone, actually, I can't be bothered, or the agency system or the client system has gone, we don't want to hear from them anymore. And I think it's a real, it's a real missing in New Zealand, right? I really think it is. Well, I, I think there's a number, a, a number of reasons for that. One is very, it's hard work. It, it's hard yeah. work. The I think the... And you know, you, you you may agree or disagree. I don't know. I think there was a there was a purple patch in New Zealand advertising in when you arrived in the, when I arrived <laughs> in the early when Mike and Toby and uh, Nick yep. um, at, at Colenso and yeah. uh, Richard Maddox. Uh, we're driving the creative side, and you, and Mario Halloran, and yeah. Waldo, sorry, Andy Blood as well yeah, on the sure. creative side, and Roger Roger McDonnell yeah. were, were driving the the business side. Yeah, and all of you guys, and I've got, we're in we're in competition with each other, but it, it was a, a kind of it was generally a friendly competition, yeah, healthy competition. Yep. Um, but there's, I I found there's a limit to, to the amount of time that you can keep your foot on the pedal. Yeah. like obsession with trying to do the best work ever at the detriment of our external life of family and outside and working crazy hours you can only I found you you can only do that for so long um, and you kind of you have to ease back the other thing is financial in that um, quite good young people are way cheaper than Potentially yep. very good old people. Yeah, the margins in the industry have been going down steadily since probably the mid eighties. Yeah, it's not a particularly profitable business, and the last thing the business wants to do is to um, have very expensive um, older people. Hmm. I guess yeah. I suppose to accept, but it's interesting. I mean, one of the creators that I work with. Early on was a guy Len Potts who said he died, but mm. he he didn't work long hours. He spent he used to hate flying, but like Michael Sullivan, yeah. Yeah. but he spent a lot of time just driving around New Zealand talking to people, and that's where most of his campaigns came from. But you could but you could do that in in those days, uh, and mm-hmm. and you know, in London the heyday of London advertising. I don't know if it was the same in the states and uh, sure. yeah when. Old and Burnback were yeah. firing, but in London, um, Clark and um, Fink yeah. would you know go in the morning, smash out a couple of campaigns, and go to lunch for the rest of sure. the day. Sure, I've, yeah. I've never done that <laughs> in, in my life, and I and yeah. I don't think 
any any of the rest of us have. You know, the, yeah. the, there was the odd the odd one, but the the thought of a Tuesday going right, okay, fuck that, that that's a good campaign. His ego suits, go and sell that. We're going to lunch. Yeah, was well, a classic right. campaign palace in Australia that used to talk about you know great ideas in the morning, then lunch in the afternoon. And, yeah. And then somebody said to me, Sadie, then they forgot about the morning bit and just did the lunches. Yes. <laughs> you know? yeah. But I think, but I guess what I'm saying though is that the power of an idea to come from, I mean, I'll, I'll step back. I, I, I would guarantee to you of the top 20 brands in New Zealand, 10 of them would be open to an enduring big idea. So if I was a creative talent, I would go, right. You know, what could I think of that would deliver that to that client? I mean, it'd be part of the agency that works with them or whatever. And and I think that if you could do that, then that would be phenomenal. And and, and I do believe it is possible. I, I, I Like, I don't... I know um, what you say is true on margins and younger talent being cheaper and all that stuff, but the need for those ideas, that enduring platform, is still... Absolutely, there. Yeah, I think I think they can ma- they can make huge huge difference to to clients and clients' business. The difficulty, uh, words, uh, they can be hard to do. Yeah. not that hard if you get if you get sure. some great creative talent together, and so it, it it can happen. Yeah. But the difficulty is rather than having the ideas, is selling the ideas or creating yeah. an atmosphere in which people want to buy. Getting them. the client to buy. It's them. getting the the CEO sure. and the exec and the marketing director lined up. In, in the same direction, sure. and having them go, shit, that could that that's an idea that could really change our business. Yeah. It's, but, but you know, it's interesting, and this is only, it's not about me, but it's only because of the position that I've been privileged to be in in the last sort of five years. But with both Spark and with Fonterra, you know, both those clients spent tens of millions of dollars more than they were ever going to do. Yeah. Because... You know, I and some other people understood what they wanted to do and said, well, if you want to achieve these goals, it's going to cost you this. And both yeah. those organisations went, right, we will. Yeah. You know, $20 million, $30 million. But, but you were in a, in a position of consultant. Yeah. 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 And agencies are not seen as consultants. No. They're, they're seen as cost and yeah. uh, seen as uh, annoying people who, who uh, tell... Um, clients that well, if they want to sell something, they're going to have to spend some money, sure. which is not what they want to hear. They want to hear, mm. well, here's a way that you can sell something that won't cost you anything. But yeah, yeah, I think so. But I think you know you can't cut cut your costs forever. And I think actually, you know, clients want to be seen to be doing big good things, right? Most of them do. I mean, I, I, you know, the clients that I've with the CEOs that I've worked with, they would probably tell you. There's only three to five real decisions they make each year, hmm. right? The rest of them, three to five decisions will drive the success. And if you get most of those right over a period of three or four years, hmm. that business will, you know, thrive. Yeah. And and I think that, um, you know, it's therefore ideal if an agency really understands where those three to five decisions might emanate from. What's the what's the cause? What's the opportunity or the threat? the risk, whatever, the competitive environment, the new consumer, whatever, mm. that drives those decisions. Because if you understand those, wow, you've got a real chance. Yeah, but it, it's it's difficult to. Yeah. It's difficult to get in that yeah. position. On the other hand, his dog provides a great source of comfort and security. That combination of new lung power is hard on the neighbours. 
So, um, Sarches. So, you and Michael left there, and I'm guessing, what, 2006, 2007? I think so, yeah. I can't remember. I'm hopeless on dates. Most people. No, but later. Yeah, 2009. 2009, was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, And you set up Droga? Yes. Well, we didn't know. Well, I, I, I just sort of. We both decided to leave. Yeah, Sarchi's and then because you, you were just bored and oh, I think just again d- done done, it done the four job five years and yeah. done the job and 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 uh, and really enjoyed it. But yeah. you know, I, like I as a someone, I like to take a few breaks and yeah. do something else. And, yeah. and then we didn't really know what we were. Uh, then we decided we would do something together. And yeah. at this stage, David Nobe Nobby was yeah. doing Droga Five. City and and um, Dave Droger um, was an Australian, is an Australian, yeah. Um, and he, so Nobby said, "Well, to Dave Droger, you should really do something with these guys." Yeah. And so we had because he'd been at Sarches when he'd been at Sarches yes. in Australia when yeah yes, and um, so we went over and met him in Melbourne one night. It didn't go quite as well as we thought it could have because. Um, without speaking ill, but but Mike had had a few beers on the flight. <laughs> He's prone to, yeah. <laughs> and, and we had some fun that night. But anyway, um, we decided to do it. And 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 David Droger is the most beautiful human being you could ever imagine. He is lovely. He's passionate. He's committed. He's you know creative. Obviously, a great business person. Mm. Um, and he was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, and so we, yeah. Sorry, just for for um, uh, people outside the direct uh, New Zealand advertising industry, Droga Five set up by David Droga, what kind of like the the done hugely successful. He's an Australian, hugely successful in New York. Yep. Um, lo- lots of business, uh, lots of awards. They set up Droga Five in Sydney, which was the first. Yes, first, first one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so. Um, David Droger, who, who's kind of like the, I don't know, the, maybe like the new John Higgerty in yes, terms of yes, yeah. I would agree with that. Um, very, very respected figure within the world. Um, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Back yeah, to and, he, and and I think actually, I think in the end, I think David realised it was a it was a mistake for him to focus on Australia and New Zealand, right? Yeah. And now they obviously have New York, which is big. Mm. And um, he always said he'd sell his company for a billion dollars. And effectively, he did. He sold forty percent of it for four hundred million to mm. William Morris, which is an entertainment company. Yeah. Um, and they now, I think now they have London and they have Asia. I think somewhere. Um, yeah. And uh, amazing business. Mm. And and anyway, so we set up Droga Five, and we were fortunate enough at that stage that ASB went to pitch, mm. and so we won that pitch. And um, which was sort of the best and worst thing to happen because because it, yeah. it it was a big bit of business and it sort of overly defined us. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? You go, wow, is that amazing? And it was, and we were always very appreciative of that opportunity. But it also, it, you know, you just you're hitting the ground running, you know. And and anyway, so we did that for a couple of years and then. Uh, ASB got a new uh, MD, chief executive, and that person decided to pitch the business basically, yeah. and um, and and you know 
you've just got to accept that at some stage. You know, that's just what some clients want to do. That's a business. Yeah, it's a business, and it's it's whatever. And so, I don't know, it caused me to reflect on what I wanted to do in my life with my wife and mm. you know, our two boys who were then 12 and 14. And, and I decided that I wanted to do something that meant I could have more time with them and not have the... I love leading people, but I... Equally, it's a responsibility, and I yes. just sort of went. I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. And um, I remember my wife saying to me, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I said, well, "I want to wear jeans and t-shirt and work three days a week." And um, and that's what I've basically done, you know. Yeah. And still, yeah, you know, that's what I love doing. Yeah, that's kind of kind of similar to me. And for the, you, you're lucky enough not to see uh, Rocky and me sitting here, but we're basically in. in Rather dodgy shorts, old t-shirts. Yeah. And My wife did say this morning. Lucky it's a podcast, <laughs> not a video. <laughs> I, I I was trying to see who could who could dress down the most, which I don't. That's probably a tie. Yeah, nice oh time. no, you've got socks on. So yeah. um, you're probably it. I, I um a, a couple of things. One about uh, um, ASB defining drove five here yep. in London when you're at Sarchers. Sarch's biggest clients, I think, were maybe the Mirror Group. Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, Dice, uh, Dixons and Curries. Yes. Yeah, you know, in in the but you were famous for doing work for sure. Castlemaine Forex sure. and British Airways, sure. and sure. and maybe the issue with Droga Five was that you had you had ASB. And and whatever ASB, that was how you were defined. There was no ad, you know, additional um, funky stuff on, yeah. the, um, on the side. Not that ASB it wasn't funky, yeah, but sure. it was. It, yeah, it's a big, big corporate bank. And yeah. you, you didn't have the really interesting work to define the agency as well. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, but but and I think also when you go from I don't know three people to thirty, yeah, in the space of you know. A, day. a month, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know what I mean, mm. and 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 also when other clients go, they look at you and go, well, but you will always be so focused on them. It was yeah. just, it was just, as I say, I mean, and I don't know, you know, and looking back, would we rather not have had ASB? No, not at all. You know, it was a great opportunity, but but it but it did very much define us in a positive and a negative way. You know, um, and one thing I didn't. To, just from the outside, as as an individual, I I wasn't because you you two could have shot started up Stone No Sullivan. Yep. Droga is is unknown in this market. Yep. Because we're just fairly inward looking. Yep. Uh, I didn't see what they were bringing. You know, to the party. Yep. As it were, I, I I guess I can maybe from your you guys' point of view, it's like well, we're part of this. Uh, up and coming, you know, incredible driving force. Yeah, but it wasn't. It wasn't only, It wasn't going to help you that much here. No. Pe- people didn't know it. I think. I think there's no. I think that's that's absolutely true. I think there's a couple of things. Though. I think one. I think Mike. Um, liked the thought of being part of a, yeah, you know, a creative yeah. family, whether it be yeah. you know, and Nobby in Australia and David Drogo, yeah. and I totally get that. I mean, yeah. I think it's. You know, I think I, I think you know being part of those shared journeys is good. Yeah. Um. It didn't make any financial difference to us. Does that make sense? We were still running our own business, and yeah. it's not like they said, you know, we're going to give you a million dollars to be drove a five or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, it did have as part of the contract, 
you know, um, you know, had we decided to sell in five years' time, there would have been advantages to mm. being a part of that entity. Um, but that was neither here nor there in terms of the decision. I think it was more just, I think it felt good to be part of that family. And certainly, um, you know, they were nothing but amazing, you know, mm. both from New York and from, you know, Dave Droger and from Nobby, you know, Certainly, in, yeah. in Australia, you know, and, and so I get that. I mean, yeah, in fact, it's funny enough, the first name for our agency was the Marine Project because we just, we got some officers in the viaduct and decided yeah. to call us the Marine Project. Um, and we could have just continued to be the Marine Project if we wanted to, yeah. which is basically a euphemism for going fishing, really, yeah. which seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is still a, still a, a big part of... Um, New Zealand advertising. Yeah, it is. Long way it lasts. Uh, so now, uh, so you, you uh, spent some time at Spark, spent some time yep. at um, Fonterra. Yep. You got any uh, new projects that you can or can talk about? Well, I've or? had... No, I'm in, I'm in the middle of a gap. Well, I'm, I'm, I've had a gap here that's been extended. Yeah. So I've just sort of... Um, I don't know... Uh, my wife and I decided that actually, why don't we just sort of take some time out? So we've done that, and we've sold a place in Coatesville and getting into some other things, and um, bought a motorbike. In fact, uh, Nick Worthington's lent me, uh, was going to lend me a motorbike for February, but I've had a childhood hero called Graham Crosby, and he's building me a Kawasaki Z1B, which is a beautiful old Kawasaki motorbike. Okay, what engine? Uh, 900cc. uh, Inline four, 900? Yeah, four something, yeah. Beautiful bikes. For so, what what year? Nineteen seventy five. Wow. Yeah, and he. But they, they the handling on those is appalling. Yes, yes, not so good, not so good. But actually, in fairness, I mean, I'm never going to be testing the handling of it anyway. Very you know? wise. Yeah. <laughs> Very wise. Um, but anyway, so doing that, and then um, just yeah, at some point I'll probably do something else. There's a couple I'm of just things. Just going back to bike, I went completely the other way around. So I had bikes all my youth and right. I, I gave it up when I came to New Zealand because yep. New Zealand you don't need like London bikes are so handy sure, because totally. parking and, around but over yeah, here yeah you yeah, know I just decided I used to have bikes and, and I love my bikes and the sun rides and, and I just went well you know be a good thing to do in fact it, 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 he just happens to build them up at Matakana which is where I now live and um, yeah so doing that but um, but I will probably do something there's a couple of things I'm looking at at the moment in terms yeah. of and, and, you know, but I'm conscious. I think that in life you've got to make wise choices about what kind of lifestyle you really want to lead yeah. and make sure that whatever you do from a business point of view um, fits around that. So, yeah, look at doing some things at the moment. But I'm in no desperate hurry. Yeah, from my point of view, you have to go, am I happy doing what I'm doing? Sure. And if you're not, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you are, keep doing it. Sure, totally. it's, um, or, too or, or, few people think like that, though. Do you know, too few people realise that actually you can control the way you spend your days if you choose to. Do well, I think, I think financial stability helps in that. Yep. Um, and also being able to rein in excesses and go, right, okay, I'm going to, if I, I can live this life... Uh, that I want to live, but you know, I'm, I'm maybe not going to go on cruises around the world or, or yeah. do this, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. But equally, I think that if you, yes, that's absolutely true, and you've got to be vigilant around that. But, but equally, if you can create 
business opportunities around what will genuinely make you happy, like what does your ideal day or week or month or year yeah. look like, then you've got more chance of succeeding at those business opportunities, right? And yeah. secondly, you've got more chance of not necessarily <laughs> spending in a wanton way just to compensate for the tough, shitty life you lead. Does that yes. make sense? You know? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's that's a real um, the the idea that well, um, fuck, I you know work, working is so I really mad. This. So I'll, I'll get I'll get this car and I'll get these clothes sure. and I'll you know get this holiday and, yeah. and and feel better. With actually, you'd be better off doing a, a less stressful job. And less buying of unnecessary objects to sure. try and keep you entertained. Yeah, oh, it's interesting. I mean, just as I was reflecting this a couple of days ago, when I was thinking, when I think of in my life the happiest people I remember, they were the old guy driving the beat up old Toyota Ute. You know what I mean? Like, it's quite interesting. And happily looking at his property or tending the cows or going to the pub and have a beer or whatever, you know? And I kind of go, You've, you've got to be very clear about what happiness looks like, you know, because if you don't head towards that, then you can live a life that's full of false happiness. Not being too philosophical, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't, I, well, I, I, false happiness is when you think that this will make you happy, but actually it doesn't, and you keep pursuing that. It was the interesting bit you were talking about the guy with the the old uh, ute, ute yep. whatever. Yeah, the, the interesting thing to me is not the ute; it's the old. Yeah, it's that you get yeah it's that, that you you get more of a realization of, of things that matter. Yeah, and you get less worked up about things that maybe don't. Yeah, totally. Well, I think you know, there's two. I mean, I really feel for young people today because I think the anxiety business, you know, the, the amount of things thrown at them to make them anxious and in all sorts of ways, whether it be the clothes they wear, you know, the climate, yeah. you know, um, social media, whatever, um, you know, it makes it very hard for them to kind of like pause and go, what really matters, you know? Yeah, well, I think we were both that person. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah in, in, like with age comes <laughs> oldness. <laughs> Wiseness. I Shit. see this wiseness. Okay, we're, we're getting into the dodgy areas of uh, bad philosophy. But yeah. um, Rocky, thank you so much for coming. It's been Pleasure, really, Paul. really interesting for me to to you know hear what drives you and some of the stories from the old days yeah. and what you've been up to. So uh, thank you very much, and look to see you out in the water. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. You've been listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Okay, list of credits. Thank you very much um, to this week's guest. Uh, if you liked it, uh, drop us a line, uh, paul at truthandsoul.co.nz. Thank you very much to everyone at Franklin Road, uh, Jonathan Cole, uh, The Wastrel Shane, Vanessa and Gracie, uh, Otis who did the logo, and uh, Matt Stalker who's going to play us out. Thank you.
centrifugal force pulls us apart as we spin. Please forgive my trembling hands, crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight. While the wicked sleep sound, the anxious toss and turn, thoughts come not as single spies, but in battalions. While the wicked sleep sound, the anxious toss and Fascination with dendrology. The family tree is losing its leaves. Please forgive my trembling hands, crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight. While the wicked sleep sound, the anxious toss and turn. Thoughts come not as single spies, but in battalions. While the wicked sleep sound, the anxious toss and turn.